this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Amen, amen. Well, I hope you're excited about what God can do in a short period of time. The Bible says, and this is a very provocative scripture, it's in James 3.18, it says, For where envying and strife is, there's confusion and every evil work. Any of you that are married can agree that marriage is a great opportunity for envying and strife. It gives you quite a challenge once you get married. What God's trying to do, he's trying to take two entirely different individuals, a man and a woman, male and female, and put them together in what he calls in the Bible, one flesh. So two completely different people are going to be made by God into one flesh. Now, if you don't think that's a challenge, you've never been married, because (laughs) once you get married, you realize that you didn't marry somebody like you. Women are different than men. Any man that says he understands a woman is lying, (laughs) because men don't understand women, and I don't know whether women understand men or not, but I know our, I'm, I'm bouncing a little bit in my sound, if you could turn me down just a little bit. But I know that uh, they did a study, this was a number of years ago, back in the 70s, to determine if, if men and women were to dif- different, and they came to the brilliant conclusion, yes, men and women are different. And they came up with things that men and women differed in, and a couple of things I remember. One thing they said was when uh, men and women go out to eat together, Invariably, some woman will stand up and say, ladies, I'm going to the restroom, and if you want to go with me, and all the women get up and go to the restroom together. Now, can you imagine a man standing up at a table out to eat and say, men, I'm about to go to the toilet, and y'all want to go with me? <laughs> Another thing they, they said that they found out is when women go out to eat, as a group of women and men go out to eat with a group of men, they, the way they pay the bill is different. The way men do it is, uh, you know, they just say, throw some money in the middle of the table, whatever left over, let it go to the tip. But when women eat together, some lady will pull out a calculator and say, now you owe her 25 cents and you owe her four cents and they get it down to the penny. I know June and I have for a number of years in the 70s, we were in a traveling ministry, traveling all around the country, and, and then uh, we'd be driving down the interstate, and June would say, there's a mall. I thought I'd look over there and say, yeah, that's a big old mall, isn't it? And I'd keep driving, but I'd look over at June, and she was upset. Now, I had no earthly, I did not, I hate to admit this, I had no earthly knowledge of why she'd be upset when we passed a mall. And I, you know, this would happen a number of times. Finally, I'd just try to divert her attention. If we were coming up on a mall, I'd try to get her to think about something else. But she never missed it. She always said, there's a mall. One day we were driving by and I said, there's a mall. And suddenly the Lord turned the light on. He said, that means to stop. <laughs> now, I don't know why. I don't know why she couldn't say there's a mall to stop. But she said, there's a mall, and I'm supposed to read her mind and stop. Well, I just pulled off and pulled into the parking lot. And I noticed that old depressed spirit just jumped off of her, jumped on me. <laughs> That's not my favorite thing to do is walk through the mall 
watching June's purse while she shops. <laughs> but men and women are different. And so when you get married, you have to be prepared. If you're married, you're probably going to have conflict. But if you can understand where envying and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. You certainly don't want to live in strife. You want to come up with a way to deal with strife so that you can live and have what the Bible calls <clears throat> heaven on earth. Heaven upon earth. The only place in the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 11, that it talks about heaven upon earth is talking about it in relationship to family. So that being the case, if I can have heaven upon earth down here living, I want to work at it. And if I know where envying and strife is, there's confusion. I don't want to have envying and strife. Because if there's confusion in every evil work, then whatever I can do to get out of it, I want to do that. So every relationship, once you enter into a relationship, every relationship is going to have conflict. In fact, they say that every relationship that goes beyond the surface goes through four stages. Forming, storming, conforming, performing. So that means when, you're, when you first meet somebody, I know June and I met at the University of Alabama. We met on a blind date. And we, you know, I, I did not grow up in a Christian church. June grew up in, in a church. She lived in, was in church all of her life. And so we uh, met because her roommate was dating my roommate, and they set us up on a blind date, so I took her to the Jungle Club, and it was just as bad as it sounds, I'm telling you. Because <laughs> I, I, I was a good moral heathen at that time, and so <laughs> I thought there's nothing wrong with going to the Jungle Club, having a good time, and she laughed at all my jokes, and Everything seemed to be going good, so I thought, well, I'll just take her to the movie. So the next day, I called her and said, well, Jen, would you like to go to the movie? And she said, yes, so I took her to the movie. And after the movie, I took her back to her dorm, and I was going to kiss her goodnight, and she kind of backed off and said, what are your intentions? Well, I thought, my intention is to go to the movie and take you back to the dorm. But uh, six months later, we were married. <laughs> So I guess she, her intentions were to get married, maybe. But we got married. Now, June grew up in church. I had no church background. And so after we graduated from the University of Alabama, moved back to her hometown, first thing she did was get back in the church she grew up in, which was East Gadsden Methodist Church. Well, I didn't want my in-laws to think that their daughter had gone to the University of Alabama and married some old reprobate. So I thought, I'm going to go to church with her on Sunday morning. I didn't want to be a fanatic and go on Sunday night or Wednesday night, so I'd go with her on Sunday morning and begin to enjoy going to church, and things were going good until one Sunday morning, uh, we changed pastors, and they sent us a pastor that every time he stood up in the pulpit, the first thing he said was, open your Bibles. And for some reason, that just irked me. And I, I, I used to say to June going home, I wish we'd get a good pastor. <laughs> the Bible, all he talks about is the Bible. Well, I didn't know I was lost and needed to be saved, but one Sunday before I turned him off, because I got to where I just turned him off, I wouldn't listen to what he was saying, but one Sunday morning he made this announcement. He said, uh, tonight the young people are going to have the service and tell us what happened at camp. Well, I was working with the young people, and I didn't know anything had happened at camp, so I thought I'd better go back tonight and see if, what happened at camp. So I go back that Sunday night, 
I didn't plan on staying for the whole service. I just wanted to see what happened. And so I planned on sitting on the back pew, and it had a column that you could kind of hide behind. So I was going to go in a little late, sit behind the back, on the back pew behind the column. When I found out what happened to the young people, I was going to slip out and go home and watch Adventures in Paradise. Any of you old enough to remember that? <laughs> kind of tells you how old we are. But anyway, those young people begin to talk about God being real. God was alive. You can pray and God will hear you when you pray. And they were crying, laughing. And sitting on the back pew of the East Gadsden Methodist Church, I began to cry like a baby because I thought, I didn't know God was real. I didn't know God was, could touch your life in a special way. And so through a number of praying and agonizing, I got born again, 1963. And so we have endeavored since 1963 to try to live and have a godly marriage. Now, up until that time, you know, I didn't care whether it was a godly marriage or not. But now, the first thing that happened to me after I got born again is somebody said, you ought to read the Bible, and you ought to start in the New Testament. So I got a Bible, and I began reading in the book of Matthew. And I was reading and, you know, laboring through the begats and all the things in the King James Bible, trying to figure it out. Got down to Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus makes this statement. He says, be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, where you're going to, uh, the clothes you're going to wear. Don't worry about life. Don't worry about how you're going to educate your children, how you're going to make your mortgage payment, how you're going to do all these things of life. Don't worry about anything. And I thought, that could not be true. That is, you know, that is impossible. You cannot go through life without worry. You've got to worry because the responsibility is you've got to make your mortgage payments. You've got to, uh, you know, educate your children. And, and I, since June grew up in church, I said, June, I want you to read this. And I read it of the scripture. And I said, now, June, you know good and well. You can't live in life without worry. And, she, you know, being a good Christian girl, she said, that's right. <laughs> she agreed with me. You've got to worry about life. But then I read a little further. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, it says this, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. All of these things, meaning everything you need in life, will be added unto you if you, number one, will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, I didn't know what that meant. didn't know anything about how to seek first the kingdom of God. But in that moment, I made a decision. Well, I'm going to do my best to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Don't know what that means, but here was what I, the conclusion I came to. I'm going to act like the Bible's true. If it says it in the Bible, I'm just going to believe it and act like it's true. Well, you know, that sounds good, but, you know, when you start reading the Bible and you find out, well, there's a lot in there that, you know, that the Bible wants you to do, that seems impossible. But I decided I'm going to act like the Bible's true. So then when I begin to come across scriptures that says, Husband, love your wife as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And so that meant that I had to lay down what I wanted, what I felt, my desires, and live as if I wanted to please my wife more than please myself. Now, that's not an easy task for 
anybody to try to say, you don't have to please me. I don't have to be pleased. I want to please you. Because in, in our flesh, everybody wants to be pleased. I want, I want you to please me. Do something that pleases me. But the, the Bible says to the husband, you've got to please your wife. Well, now that takes some effort, and you have to really die to self in order to do that. But that's what the Bible says, that, that God puts the responsibility on the husband. Love your wife as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for the church. So that means that's one of my responsibilities as a husband. So we, over the years, have endeavored to try to put into practice what the Bible teaches, and hadn't always been perfect at it, but one of the things that we ran into quickly was this scripture, where envying and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. So then we decided, well, we don't want in our marriage envying and strife, so we're going to have to deal with it. We cannot let it fester, because if we don't deal with it, it's going to have every evil work. I don't want to live in every evil work. I don't want to have the devil knocking on my door every day trying to get his will and way in my life. So we're going to endeavor to do away with strife. Now, it's not an easy task to do because when you get married, you get married because, you know, you've fallen in love. And when you're dating, you know, when you're dating, I don't know if this is true with everybody, but I showed June what I wanted her to see. I didn't show her the real me. I showed her personality. You know, I could, I could be funny. Well, you know, we could uh, kind of joke and we could be, you know, just because when you're dating, there's no real pressure because you just, you know, you, just, you can just be Mr. Personality. But the very moment you get married, pressures of life, personality flies away and the real you comes to the surface. So it didn't take long. I mean, I think we had been married probably about uh, one day, one day. <laughs> and we started having conflict. The first thing, the first conflict we had was, it was my responsibility. June, you know, when we, when we got married, we got married our last year at the University of Alabama. I, didn't, I was going to school on the GI Bill. I had no money. I think I got $120 a month from the GI Bill to go to school. I worked at ROTC and made $12.50 a week. And uh, I'm going to get married. That's all, that's all I had. I had no hidden assets. And so we get married now. In order for me to get married, her daddy had to buy me a ring to give her. And then not only that, he had to buy me a suit to get married in. And not only that, he let us use his car to go on a honeymoon, and, which we didn't have a honeymoon, but he let us, he let us use his car. It, it was about three weeks later I realized, your daddy really wanted to get rid of you, girl. <laughs> Because, but anyway, the only responsibility that was put on me, I didn't have any, you know, I didn't do the groom's dinner. Somebody did the groom's dinner, everything. You know, they just took me in as a, a member of the family, I guess, felt sorry for me. But June wanted me to make a reservation for the 
motel that we were going to stay in. We were going to leave Gadsden and drive back to Tuscaloosa where the, we were, had rented a little one-room apartment. We had a garage apartment we had rented that had one bedroom, a little cubbyhole for a bath, and a little cubbyhole for a kitchen. Didn't have a closet. We had to hang clothes on nails around the wall. But we were in love. We thought, that's, uh, that's our honeymoon castle. We can hardly wait to get to our honeymoon castle. But we're going to stay in a motel. And back, this was in 1959. Holiday Inn had just come out, and it was a kind of a, you know, kind of a prize to get to stay at Holiday Inn. So June said, now you make the hotel reservation. Well, I didn't know, I didn't even think about it. And then, <laughs> in fact, I'd never made a hotel reservation. And so we, I, I thought, well, if, you know, you just drive up, you walk in, get a room. Well, we drive up and walk in, and there's no rooms available. How many believe that's the potential for strife? <laughs> so strife, you know, right the first night, I mean, she didn't, uh, she didn't act ugly, but I mean, you can tell when your wife's upset. And she was, uh, she was highly upset. Now, we wound up staying in, <laughs> well, I don't want to tell you what we stayed in, but it wasn't, it wasn't the Holiday Inn. It was a little lower than the Holiday Inn. <laughs> but the next day, we get up and go to our honeymoon castle. We're still in love. You know, we kind of had uh, got through the bad night. And here we are now. We're in our honeymoon castle. The next morning, we wake up. And June said to me, she said, what would you like for breakfast? And I said, well, darling, I'd like two eggs over easy for breakfast. She said, okay. And about 30 minutes later, she served me two burnt scrambled eggs. Well, I'm in love. I'm, I'm feeling not quite as lovely, but I thought, well, I'll, I'm in love. I can work through this. I can eat burnt scrambled eggs. And the next morning, you know, same thing. What do you want for breakfast? Wasn't quite as nice as the second morning. I said, well, I want two eggs over easy. 30 minutes later, two burnt scrambled eggs. <laughs> well, you know, it's not as, I, I, I shook my head a little bit that, and, you know, it's not as, I'll eat it, I'll just eat it. Third day, same scenario. What do you want for breakfast? Well, I want two, I want two eggs over easy. Of course, the burnt scrambled eggs came out, and then my personality had just gone. It left. I said, what do you have to do to get eggs over easy? Cook them yourself. <laughs> the honeymoon is over. And then for the next year, for the, at least a year, every, t every time we'd get in an automobile, June would start crying. I thought, man, why in the world did you marry such a crybaby? All she does is cry, upset. I think she was fed up with being married after about a week. She wanted to, she wanted to go home and be with their parents. But we struggled through that, and then now I'm born again, and now we're trying to work at having a godly marriage. And it takes some effort. In fact, I have come to the conclusion to have a godly marriage is a full-time job. I don't mean it's, uh, it's 8 to 5, Monday through Friday. I mean, to have a godly marriage is a full-time 
24-7 job. You've got to work at it. You can't just hope it'll work out. You've got to work at it. Because it's my responsibility as a Christian, and it's your responsibility as a Christian, to always do something about strife. In fact, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, if you wrong somebody, you have to go make it right. Now, you can, you know, I can kind of agree with that. I hurt your feelings. It's my responsibility to come try to work it out. But in Matthew 18, it says, if somebody wrongs you, it's your responsibility to go work it out. Now, that just doesn't sound fair. But, but that's what the Bible teaches. And if you've made a decision, I'm going to live like the Bible's true, you can't just brush that off. So that means even if I think June is wrong, it's my responsibility to work it out. And you know, the flesh doesn't want to do that. But as a Christian husband, my responsibility is to die to flesh so that I can give what needs to be given to have us a godly marriage. So you have to work it out. So that means we have to learn how to resolve conflict. We just can't live in life letting the devil come in and rob us of a godly marriage just because we got our feelings hurt or something was said, something was done that's really bothering us. We've got to decide, no, I'm not going to live in conflict. I'm going to do something. I'm going to take responsibility. I'm not going to leave it up to June to always be the one that works it out. I have to be the one that works it out. And of course, as a Christian, she has to have the same attitude. I've got to work this out. I can't just live in envying and strife and have the devil knocking on my door every day trying to destroy what God wants as a godly marriage. So what are some things you can do to work out strife? Number one, the Bible says you have to do it quickly. Do it quickly. It says, agree with your adversaries today, now. Don't let it fester. Do something about it today. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, the Bible says. So that means if we're in strife, we can't just put it off and put it off and put it off. We have to do it now. Now, one of the things that June and I have done over the years to try to help us is when we find ourselves kind of bickering at one another, one of us will say, and usually it's June, will say, well, come on in, devil. Just do what you want to do. Because that's exactly what the Bible says. Where envying and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. If you're in envying and strife, you're actually saying, okay, devil, just come on in. Do whatever you want to do. I'm here. Just beat me up. And we don't take the time to close that door so the devil doesn't have access to come in and rob us of heaven upon earth. So you have to do it quickly. Don't let the sun go down on your, on your wrath. Just deal with it. Do it quickly. One of the things that uh, I, I remember back, this was back in the 60s, 69, early 70s. We, were, we had left the Methodist Church. We were in a, a, char, a Pentecostal charismatic church, and things were going great. It was, you know, in the midst of the charismatic renewal. People were getting born again, spirit-filled, great revival going on. But the church was just booming, and suddenly strife broke out. And uh, June had a vision one night. God gave her a vision, and, and she saw 
that sanctuary, which was a large sanctuary, and there was a spot that was real dark in her vision. And as she watched it, that cancer, that spot began to grow. And pretty soon the whole sanctuary was blackened with strife. Cancer will spread in the body, but strife will spread in the church. It's like a cancer it has to be dealt with. Now, if it'll do that in the church, what will it do to a family? Strife can just eat away until there's nothing left. So you have to deal with it quickly. Don't let it fester. And don't try to don't suppress it and hope it'll go away. It just never goes away by itself. You have to do something. You have to take action. You have to be the one that says, I, I'm, I'm going to do something. I'm not just going to hope it'll go away. And if I just act kind from now on and be sweet, maybe this strife will go away. No, you have to take some action. You have to do something about it. Because I've dealt, as a pastor, I have dealt with couples who were trying to keep peace by not standing up for things that are right. You know, sometimes, you know, this happens in Christian families many times. A woman thinks, well, I've got to be submissive to the husband. And that is what one of the things the Bible says about wives being submissive. But you don't have to submit to strife. You don't have to submit to browbeating and all the other things that can go in a marriage. You have to stand up. Now, you don't have to do it in an ugly way and do it in a way that, you know, you're angry and you're throwing dishes and doing all those things. But if you just say, we're not going to live this way. We're just not going to live this way. I'm going to, we're going to sit down and talk this out. We're going to work this out. Now, I know that every situation is different, but I, what I'm trying to say is don't settle for less than best. If it's, not, if it's not going good, don't settle for it. Don't hope it'll work out. Don't just sit there and say, well, I'll just cry and weep and maybe something will happen. No, we're going to make it work. God wants us to have heaven upon earth. I'm just not going to put up with this. This is not right. And do it in the way that you have to sit down. You have to make it work. You have to, you have to deal with it. And uh, it's the responsibility now. If the Bible says, if you wrong somebody, make it right, that's not just talking about men, that's talking about men and women. You make it right. If somebody's wronged you, don't just sit there and cry. Make it right. Do something. And that means sometimes you just have to say, no, we're, we can't go any further until we get this right. We're going to have to, we're going to, have to sit down and talk. Now, I know in, in our marriage, June is a, a talker, and I'm you know, this may be true with men, but women like to chit-chat. And that, to me, that means talk about nothing. <laughs> and, and, and my, yeah, I've got to be careful here. I'm, I'm treading on some pretty dangerous territory. But, but anyway, what I had to do as a husband is I had to learn to make myself sit down and chit-chat, talk. So when our, when our children were small, we'd put them in bed, and we'd have a time when television's off, tape recorder's off, and all we do is sit there, and we, we talk about the day, talk about what's going on, and chit-chat, June had to teach me this, I say something, you say something. <laughs> I say something, 
and you say something. Now, I had to be taught that because I just sit there and let her talk. Just talk, 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 talk all you want. I'm going to listen to you, but I, no, that means you talk. I know one time, this is when I was pastoring, and you know, this, this has been in our marriage for years, you know, trying to make me, me a chit-chatter, and we could sit down and talk. And I thought, well, we were having an elders meeting. I said, I'm going I'm to take notes. I'm going to take notes of everything everybody said in the elders meeting because I know Jim will say, in our chit-chat time, how did the elders meeting go? I took detailed notes. I had it down. I mean, Tom opened prayer, and Bill said this. And, and I had, I think it was three legal pages full. I thought, I'm going to show her. So we got home, and we were sitting down and chit-chat, and she said, well, how'd the elders' meeting go? Now, I didn't want to look at her, but I, I said, let me tell you about it. And I took my notes out, and I, I, read, I read my notes. It took me a good 10, 15 minutes. I thought, boy, I'll show her this chit-chat stuff, not all that's cracked up to me. <laughs> I got through, and then I smugly looked at her, and she said, now, that's what I like. <laughs> So, you have to learn how to chit-chat. And so I had to work at that over the years. But if you're going to have a right relationship, you have to have time when you talk, when you interact with one another, and when you're able to say, this is not working. We're going to have to spend some time on this. This is not working. So let's see how we can work this out. Now, we're talking about people that want a godly marriage. If all you want is to be pleased, then you're never going to work it out. You're just going to, you're not pleasing me. I want to be pleased. No, if you're a husband, you have to please your wife. That's what the Bible says, if you want a godly marriage. Now, there are, there are marriages that, you know, if I've counseled as a pastor, where I would be counseling a couple. And I remember one in particular, this couple came in, and actually was a, a doctor, or a I think he was a dentist or a doctor, and his wife. They didn't go to our church, but they had called and wanted some count, marriage counseling. And they came in, and the, I said, well, uh, tell me about what's going on. And the wife talked for a good hour. I mean, she named everything that was going on in the marriage, and she was upset, and, and you know, and I'm... I looked over to the husband, and he had kind of had his, you know, like he was bewildered, you know, <laughs> didn't know what was going on. And then after she got through, I said, well, what do you have to say to that? He said, to be honest with you, I didn't know we were having trouble. <laughs> I mean, the marriage is on the brink of falling apart, and he didn't even know they were having trouble. And sometimes you can, you know, just be, <laughs> I don't know, your head in the sand or something. But thank God, if you sit down and talk with one another, learn to establish, we have now what we call, uh, Jen and I call it sipping time. Every morning, we have a time when we sit down together, and that's our responsibility to talk about, you know, what's going on, talk about the day. If you don't have anything to talk about, talk about something. You know, just chit-chat. Spend some time where you talk to one another. That's very important. Now, if you don't do that, the devil is going to come in and he's going to start festering 
And just like the cancer, pretty soon it just has your whole marriage wrapped up. So put some effort into it. Make some time to chat, chit-chat and talk, communicate with one another. And if there's a problem, you know, try to sit down in a calm voice and work it out. See, most of our conflict comes in burst of anger. And we never work anything out when we're angry. So you have to come to the place where I can talk without getting mad. I have to give my wife the privilege to say things to me that I don't want to hear. And then she has to do the same thing with me. During this time of talking, I can say something that we won't get mad at. Now, you, you know, that sounds easy for me to stand up here and say that. But folks, it's not easy on your flesh to have somebody say something you don't want to hear. Can anybody say amen? Is I'm, I'm, I'm the only one here. <laughs> you, know, you, don't want to be, you don't want to know that you're the problem. It's really the, her problem. It's not your problem. But we have to be willing to find out we do have some problems and we can do something to make it work out. And you have to do it in a calm way without losing your temper and without throwing dishes and doing all the things we like to do when we fight. We've got to be able in a calm way to say we've got some problems and we do not want the devil coming in and giving it every evil work working in our marriage. So we're going to work it out. We're going to put some effort into it. Now, you have to press through. You can't just sit around hoping to work out. You have to press through. You have to be determined. We're going to make this work out. It's my responsibility. I've got to see to it that something good is going to come out of this. And then June has to have the same attitude. We're going to make it work. We're not going to quit. We're not going to give up because there is something wonderful on the other side of the conflict. Heaven upon earth. The only place we can have heaven upon earth is in our family. So if I want heaven upon earth, I'm going to have to put some effort into it. I'm not going to settle, just hope it'll go away. I'm going to have to press through. And then we cannot allow bitterness and unforgiveness to enter into our relationship so that we just go through life with a grudge against the person we're married to. Now, you say, well, that's not... That's probably won't ever happen to us. If you're married, it can happen to you. You can get to a place where you resent everything your spouse does. It's just, you know, bitterness just comes in and robs you of the blessings that God wants you to have. I know that, uh, that many times, it, if we're not careful, we just find ourselves where we just get, where well, we just won't, I'll just bear it. I'll just I'm, I'm mad, and I don't want to say I'm mad, and I'll just get bitter and have unforgiveness in my heart. Now, you cannot live with unforgiveness. Unforgiveness will rob you. It'll make you sick. It can destroy your life. So you have to deal with unforgiveness. I know that back in the, this was in the latter part of the 80s, Jim and I'd left pastoring and we were back in a traveling ministry and we, tra we got an invitation to go into this church and do a marriage seminar. And the day that we were scheduled to go in, the pastor was caught in an indiscretion with another woman. And I'm telling you, that church was booming, it was going and growing. And, was a, and, and when this happened, I'm telling you, uh, 
anger just broke out in the congregation and everything, everybody was mad. Deacons were mad at elders, elders were mad at the pastor, and the people were mad at each other. It just, and we, I don't know if you've ever tried to teach in a situation where everybody's mad, but I'm telling you, everything you say would bounce back and hit you. You know, you just, and we'd say, you know, after the first day, we said, well, just two more days and we can go home. And we go back, just one more day and we can go home. And then the last day, I said, well, this is our last night. Let's go in there and just, just be as quick as we can. Let's get out of this town. And before the meeting, the, uh, the lead elder came to me and said, Brother Gene said, we don't know what we're going to do. The church is just, it's just everybody's mad and angry and we don't have a pastor. He's, he had to step down. And Would you mind just helping us get a pastor? Just interim pastor till we could get a pastor. Well, no. <laughs> But I felt, like, I felt like the Spirit of God said, say yes. And I said yes. And, and so I agreed that we would be the interim pastor there until they could get a pastor. So the way we would do it is June and I would be in a meeting and I would leave the meeting on the weekend and go preach in the church, stay over on Monday if there's anything going on. And then I'd go back and join her wherever we were in a meeting. And, you know, that went on for, you know, for months and I'm preaching everything I know to, to bring harmony. I'm love, forgiveness, and, you know, just everything I know. And after, it was, after about a year, I thought, man, I'm getting nowhere. This, it's getting worse. I had people write me ugly letters. I had people stand up and challenge me from the congregation. And, uh, you know, and then uh, everybody was mad. And I thought, I don't know what to do. And I was driving home. We lived in about three hours from there. And so I was going back home, and I was driving. I was kind of complaining to God. I said, God, I don't know what to do. You told me to do this, and I'm just not making any headway. I don't know what to do. And the Lord, the Lord spoke to me in the automobile and said, when you go back next week, I want you to say this. And he, he gave me something he wanted me to say to the people. And then he said, when you get through, I want you to say to the people, Anyone not willing to get out of conflict and forgive will be turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I'm telling you, that scared me. I don't know if that scared you, but that, that literally scared me. I thought, I can't say that to those people. But the Lord just kept saying, now that's what you're supposed to do. So I go back the next Sunday. Now, I'm, I'm really fearful. I've never, I've never done this, never known anybody to do it. I've read it in the Bible. That's the only thing I know about it. They did do it in the Bible. And so I preached what I felt like the Lord had given me, and at the end of the service, I said, now the Lord said, anyone not willing to get out of strife and forgive those that have wronged you will be turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, when I said that here, it just sounded like words. But when the Holy Spirit of God anointed it, it was like the fire of heaven fell on that congregation and everybody in the building began to weep and cry. It was just an awful, awesome move of the Spirit. And everybody just repented and cried and when it was over with, you know, people were coming up just crying and weeping and said, well, I've forgiven everybody. And this one guy walked up to me and he said, Brother Gene, he was crying. I mean, tears running down his cheek. 
He said, I have forgiven so-and-so. And he called the name of somebody that really bugged me the whole time I'd been there. I mean, just, just was under my skin. And he said this, I forgive so-and-so, but I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw him. And I thought, now that's exactly the way I feel. I forgive him myself, but I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw it. I was going back home, and I'm, I'm kind of reliving. You know, it, you know, it's something to be in a move of God like that, to just see God just do something supernatural. So I was reliving, and I was just thinking, man, what God did is so awesome. And it was kind of like uh, I was seeing a video of the whole service. And in the video, you know, get up to the end of the service and everybody weeping and crying, you know, just kneeling on the floor and walking around, you know, crying and walking up and hugging people, forgiving people. And I thought, man. And then in in the vision, you know, this video play, I don't know if it was a vision or not, but it it was like a video replay of the service. This man walked up to me, you know, and said, I, I really do, I, I forgive, and he called the name of the person, but I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw him. I, I saw that, and then suddenly I heard the Lord say, that sounds like a hypocrite, doesn't it? And I thought, oh my God, I'm a hypocrite. And I began to weep. God, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I just don't want to be a hypocrite. And so when I got home, I called this, this man and his wife. I called him. I said, when I come up next Saturday, let's have dinner together. And he said, okay. And so the next, when I went up there on Saturday, we met for dinner. And we were sitting, and, and I, you know, I told him, I said, uh, you know, I just want to tell you that the whole time I've been here that I really didn't like you. But I want you to know that God's changed my heart. And I, I, I said, tell me about your life. And he gave me his testimony. He had a great testimony. He was in, in drugs. God delivered him off drugs. Got born again. Got filled with the Spirit. His children were born again, serving God. And I, I thought, that guy's a Christian. That guy's born again. He loves God. And so I said, uh, I said to him, well, I just want you to know that I love you. He jumped up, you know, big old gruff guy jumped up, started walking around the table where I was. And I thought, man, he, I'm done for, you know. He said, but when he got around, all he did was hug me. And he said this, he said, preacher, I don't know whether you're supposed to be here or not, but he said, I, I want you to know I'm on your side. Now, how many believe that's better than strife and better than unforgiveness? But you have to understand that in Christian people, you know, I'm not talking about lost people, I'm talking about Christian people. If you get beyond the flesh, most people are pretty nice. Most Christian people are pretty nice people. If you can get beyond the flesh, the flesh is what I want, what I feel, what I think. If you can get beyond that, and get down to the spirit man that's born again, child of God, you find out that most Christians are nice people. Well, how do you get to know people? You have to spend time with them. You have to get to know that most people, most Christian people can be fleshly if they're not careful. Anybody in here ever acted in the flesh besides me? 
Well, sometimes you just get in the flesh. Well, if you let the spirit man lead, you can get out of the flesh and learn to live in the spirit. And you find out that most people, when they do that, then they're pretty nice people. And one of the thing, one scripture that's to me is a, an awesome scripture is in Matthew chapter 18. It's the unforgiving servants, a familiar scripture. I won't read it, but I think you'll recognize it. This guy owed somebody a lot of money. You know, just I don't know how much, but you know, let's say ten thousand dollars. Owed this guy ten thousand dollars, and he couldn't pay it, so he just begged and pleaded. And finally, the guy said, "Okay, I forgive you." So he goes out and he meets this guy that owes him like $5. And this guy pleads with him to forgive him, but he wouldn't forgive him, and he put him in jail over $5. And then the guy over here that had forgiven him then came and he said, okay, he would be handed over to the tormentors to be tormented day and night until he would forgive. In other words, if you're not willing to forgive, you give the devil an open door. Just come on in, devil. Just have a field day. Just do whatever you want to do because I'm not going to forgive him. He hurt my feelings, and I'm not going to forgive him. He, I'm going to hold that debt. Hold that debt. So you have to be willing to turn loose of the debt that somebody owes you and say, well, I forgive you. You don't owe me an apology. You don't owe me an explanation. I just forgive you. I forgive you. You don't owe me anything. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is saying you don't owe me anything. I forgive you. You don't owe me anything. I know I heard this illustration one time about forgiveness that I thought made sense. It said in, in some country, the, the way they capture monkeys is they take a little small mouth jar, put a peanut in it, and the monkey will put his, his hand in the jar and grab the peanut, and he can't get it out because the peanut made him make a fist, and he won't turn loose of the peanut, so he gets captured. Well, you know, the devil's working the same little show on God's people. Little peanuts that upset us, we grab hold of, and we won't turn it loose, and the devil just captures us, and we're tormented day and night. How I many would believe that we ought to turn loose of those peanuts and just let them go instead of holding on to them? Well, yeah, if you're going to do that, you have to establish some kind of communication. You have to be able, willing to talk about it. You have to set some time when, okay, we're going to sit down, we're going to talk, we're not going to shout at one another, we're not going to get angry at one another. You know, what can I do? What can I do to help you? And what can, you know, what you, what you can do to help me? And let's work this out. Let's just spend some time on it. And then the one thing we can do, I believe that if we'd ever grab hold of this, if, if we're born again, if we're a Christian, we ought to just act like the Bible's true and live like the Bible. I'm a Christian. Well, what do Christians do? Well, Christians, number one, are givers. The Bible says, as a Christian, give and it'll be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running, running over. There's one scripture in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8 that says, now listen to this, whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Whatsoever good thing. 
That means if I do any good thing to you, I'll receive of the Lord something better than what I gave. Isn't that a good scripture? It doesn't mean just money. It means if I'm kind to June, God will pay me back more than I gave her. Isn't that a good scripture? You like that scripture? That means we, we have an incentive. We have an incentive to be kind, to be loving, to be forgiving, to be a helpful because we receive back more than we gave. Whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall receive of the Lord. Well, the, the Bible also says that we ought to walk in love. We ought to walk in love. Well, what does love do? Well, now, according to 1 Corinthians 13, the Bible says love is kind. It says, now listen to this one. Love takes no account of a suffered wrong. I might ought to say that again. Love takes no account of a suffered wrong. If you wrong me, if I love you, I'm just not going to take an account. I'm just going to say, well, that's just the work of the flesh. You didn't know what you were saying. I'm just going to forgive you. That's what love does. Aren't you glad God loved us that way? Take no account of a suffered wrong. Love is not selfish. Love is not puffed up. And then another thing that Christians ought to know how to do is to sow, is to sow good. Because the Bible says, whatsoever, this is in Galatians chapter 6, it says, for whatsoever a man soweth, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to the flesh shall of the, shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life. Be not deceived, God's not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. What, now that's pretty far wide, isn't it? Whatsoever a man soweth. That tells me I better be careful what I sow because I'm going to reap what I sow. And the reaping is always worse than the sowing. It's going to come back and hit you right in the face. So be careful what you sow. And then you have to learn to live by faith. Act like the Bible's true. If God said it, I'm just going to do it. If God said forgive, I'm going to forgive. If God said to love, I'm going to love. I'm going to try to live like the Bible. And when I do, I'll find out that God begins to do things in a supernatural way. And then I can get through. You see, I was on the, before I got married, I'm, I'm forming a relationship. When I get married, storming comes. But the time has to come in every marriage when you decide, I'm going to die to what I want. In fact, you cannot have resurrection life without a death. A lot of us want to live in resurrection life, but you can't get to resurrection without a death. There has to be the death of what I want, what I feel, what I think, so that I conform, and then we come together as one flesh, and we perform. Now, that's good preaching. <laughs> now, let me share with you... And, now, to the men, I want to speak to the men. I guess you're going to speak to the women. I try to stay away from the women because you can get in trouble trying to tell women what to do. So <laughs> I'm going to let her do that. But 
If marriage is a full-time job, that means that us husbands are going to have to put some effort into having a good marriage. It's a 24-7. In Proverbs chapter 24, it says this. I won't, I won't read it, but it's a pretty clear. It says, whatever you neglect will come to poverty. You know, it talks about the slowful man that doesn't look after his property. It's going to get grown over with nettles and briars, and then it will come ultimately come to poverty. Whatever you neglect will come to poverty. That means as a husband, if I neglect my wife, it's going to come to poverty. So I have to put some decision. Am I going to do everything I can to have a godly marriage, or do I want to come to poverty? I'm going to have to be diligent about it. Well, if the Bible says, husbands, love your wife, as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That means, just like Christ died for the church, he did not die because it was fun to die. He did not suffer on the cross because this is such a good, wonderful thing to do. It'll feel so good after I get through. No, it was an agonizing death to die on the cross. But he did it. Thank God he did it. Because that's how you and I got born again. Because he went to the cross and died. Well, just like Christ died on the cross, then I'm going to have to die to what I want. I'm going to have to die to what I feel, what I think. I'm going to have to do everything I can to try to be a blessing to the person that God's given me as a wife. Now, here's what I find in counseling people over the years as a pastor is most, this is especially true, I'm sure it's probably true with women, but I, I know it's true with men. Men get married, and they still want to live like they're single. Well, folks, when you get married, you have to die to being single. You're no longer single. You no longer do what you want to do when you were a single person. You're now, you've yoked yourself with a woman, and now your job as a husband is to please your wife. You say, well, I just don't want to do that. Well, you shouldn't have got married. Because you're, you're really your joy and your happiness is dependent upon it. Heaven upon earth is dependent upon it. Now you, you say, well, I've got to give up I've got to give up my hunting. Well, you may not have to give up all your hunting, but you cannot hunt every day of the week and be married. You're married. You've got to spend time with your wife. You've got to have time with your wife. So there has to be something that you do to make a decision. Well, whatever I give up, I get more back. Now, these are things you've got to learn to live with. You have to act like the Bible's true. If the Bible's true, whatever I sow, I'm going to reap. Whatever I give, it'll be given back to me, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. So I'm not afraid to be the giver. It's going to work out to my good. I'm going to have to realize I died by self-will living. I died a living single. I die to what pleases me because I want heaven upon earth. I've got, a, I've got a goal I'm shooting for. Heaven upon earth is going to be mine. And so I'm going to work for that goal. Now, 
The next thing we have to do as a husband, the Bible says, is we have to sanctify our wife with our words, just like Christ sanctified the church with his word. That's one of my responsibilities. That means I've got to change the way I talk to my wife. Sanctify means to be set apart. We have been set apart, made special by the Word of God. The Bible, through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, has made us special. And we are washed with that Word. I'm more than a conqueror. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The joy of the Lord is my strength. You know, there's just so many wonderful scriptures that wash over me, and I think I don't have to go through life defeated. I don't have to go through life beat down, discouraged. Thank God I am somebody. I'm born again. I'm a child of God. Well, what does that? The Word of God washes over me. I've been made special, sanctified by the Word of God. Well, then I have to learn that God wants me to wash my wife with words because words are powerful. And I don't know about your wife, but my wife can remember what I said 30 years ago. And I've had her say to me, well, you remember what you said in 1972. <laughs> no, I don't remember what I said. I don't even remember what I said yesterday. <laughs> I mean, there's something about words that affect women in powerful ways. Now, what you're speaking over your wife is sanctifying her to be what you call her. You have to change your vocabulary. You have to, you have to learn words like uh, darling, wonderful, dear, sweetheart, precious. Oh, you look good today. Oh, I'm telling you, you're just the best wife in the world. You're a wonderful cook. You're a wonderful mother. I just love you because you just look so beautiful today. And you may be saying, well, my wife's none of that. Well, the Bible says, call those things that be not as though they were. <laughs> and they'll come, become. See, words are powerful. You, you start calling your wife beautiful, and she'll just, do, she'll just move heaven and earth to be beautiful because your words sanctify her, set her apart. You're wonderful. You're sweet. You're, you're precious to me. Those are words that men have to learn sometimes. Because if we're not careful, we just use words that just spring out of our mouth that, that really are going to do harm to your wife and to your relationship. And if you want your words to sanctify your wife, then you have to speak words that are in line with the Word of God. Talk about how wonderful she is, how marvelous, and sanctify her with your words. And then you have to pay attention to your wife because the Bible says, in Ephesians 5, 28, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. How many of you know if you don't pay attention to your body, you break fellowship with people? You know that? If you don't, if you don't pay attention to your body, if you don't take a bath, if you don't use deodorant, if you don't spend some time on yourself, you break fellowship. People don't want to be around you long. 
So that means just like you tend to your body, the Bible said, you are to tend to your wife as your own body. Pay attention to her. Because if you don't pay attention to her, you know, it's going to be a stinking relationship. You have to pay attention to your wife. Now, what, you, what does that mean? Well, I believe it could mean a lot of things that, that may be not natural to men, but because they say, you know, I believe this is probably true. You know, I don't think you can make any statement that's absolute. But they say that, uh, you know, normally women are more romantic than men. And that, I know that's probably true in, in our case. And so a lot of times women respond to romantic things in a way that, you know, wouldn't bother a man. I know, I think it was the first year after we got married, I struggled and saved up money. I was going to buy June a, I think it was a birthday or a Christmas present. I don't remember now what it was. But I thought, I was so happy. I'm going to buy her up. She's going to be so excited about this present. And so on her birthday, I think it was, I gave her a sewing machine. How many of you know sewing machines are not romantic? <laughs> she cried for two weeks. I mean, I thought I was doing something good. But now, you know, romantic things are things that, to me, it's you know, flowers. Who wants flowers? Who wants to eat in a restaurant with no lights? You know, just things that are, you know, things that are romantic. So, us unromantic people, we have to learn to be romantic. You know, it's an effort. It's a full-time job. You've got to work at it. You can't just sit back and say, well, I don't like that. No, you've got to, be, you've got to put some effort in it. You have to learn to say, I want to please my wife. So what can I do? Well, I tell you on her birthday, I'm going to make a reservation at this wonderful restaurant. And we're going to go and we're going to have a real romantic dinner together. You know, that, that's romantic, I think. <laughs> you have to learn to think about things that you think are wasteful. That's probably romantic. <laughs> Another thing that... Uh, Men, I believe, uh, based on the Bible, you know, we have to love our wife as Christ loved the church. We have to wash her with words. We have to pay attention to her. And the Bible, the Bible says, any man that does not provide for his wife is worse than an infidel and has denied the faith. I believe it's the responsibility of the husband to provide for the family. Now, I don't mean that women can't do it and women can't work and help and all that. I'm not talking about that. But I believe when we get to heaven, God will hold me responsible that I provide for my family. Now, if we decide that June is better at it than I am, then we can decide mutually that, you know, that she can. But there's something in a man that does not want to be supported by his wife. He wants to think, I'm the one that's, that's making the living. I'm the one providing for this family. It's my responsibility. Now, that's a, that's a pretty big thing in, in this day and age we live in, that I'm responsible that this family has enough to eat, has a house to live in. 
We have a car to drive. We have our bills paid. I'm the one responsible. Now, when I go out into the world, you know, making that living, that responsibility is on me. When I come home at night, I like to be met with a wife that thinks I'm wonderful. Makes me feel good. And one of the things they, they say, you know, you know, I'm, I'm using some generalities here because not everything is, is in concrete. But, you know, it's naturally believed that men are the pursuers in the sexual relationship and women respond to the love of God that's in their husbands. Women were made by God to respond to the love of God. This is why we, many, many times women get saved quicker than men because they're, they're looking for the love of God and they want to find it in their husband. So that being the case, then in the sexual relationship, it's just for a man, you know, it doesn't take anything to turn a man on, you know, young man, you know, ring the doorbell and he gets turned on. You know. <laughs> but, you know, if we're talking about a job, a full-time job, sometimes we have to go beyond just the regular things. Some of, you, some of you women might want to try this sometimes. When your husband is struggling with paying the bills and he's in there and he's wondering how he's going to get enough money to pay the bills, and what you need to do, this is just a little advice, is take off your old rugged house coat, take the face cream off your face, hair whirlers out of your hair, Put on the sleekest, shortest nightie you can find and walk up to the door where he's struggling. Say, what you doing, big boy? <laughs> and he won't care whether he pays the bills or not. Pay attention. <laughs> Go beyond the call of duty. Be the giver. And you'll find out that God can do wonderful things when we do our part. Now, what I want to lead up to is this. And Jen will pick up with it. But over here, we have heaven upon earth. Promised to us as family people and a family. As a married man with children, I have the God-given promise of heaven upon earth. And all I've got to do is do my part. I don't have to do June's part. I don't have to do somebody else's part. I've got to do my part. So I'm going to make the effort to act like the word of God's true. I'm going to live by faith and thank God when it's all said and done, we're going to have heaven upon earth. And I can testify after 58 years of being married, I wouldn't want to be married to anybody else. I, want, I don't want to I'm not looking for anybody. I've got who God gave me, and I sure do enjoy life. Now, she may not enjoy as much as I do, but I, I'm happy being married. Now, if you can come to 58 years and say, I would not have done it any other way. I'm so glad that at the University of Alabama, God put June and me together, and we've been married 58 years. We didn't get, we didn't get here by floating. We got here by effort. We got here by working. We got here by 
sitting down talking. We got here by saying, no, I'm not going to settle for this. This is not the way I'm going to live. We're going to make this work. We're going to put some effort into it. And now, after 58 years, it pays to do it God's way. Amen. Stand to your feet. Let me bless you. We're going to take a break, and then June will come back and minister, and then we'll minister to everybody at the end. Before we go home today, we want everybody to be ministered to. If you're close to your spouse, grab hands with your spouse. Let me bless you. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy upon this meeting. We thank you, Lord, that your desire is that every couple in this building come to the place in life where they have heaven upon earth. They're not living in envy and strife. They're living in peace and joy and happiness. And so I bless these couples. I bless them, Lord, with divine wisdom of God to know what to do, how to do it, when to do it. I bind every work of the devil that's trying to come against and rob, steal, kill, and destroy. And agree, Lord, that your word does work, that you're going to move supernaturally to give them heaven upon earth. We bind strife. We take authority over it in Jesus' name. And Lord, I speak now peace, joy, harmony, and heaven upon earth in Jesus' name. Amen. 30-minute break. Amen. I'll turn it over to... Amen. Thank you, Gene. How'd you find a card so fast? I'm a speaker of lady language. I hear their voices in my head, much like Beethoven heard music. No, I think those are just voices. Either way, I've got a card and you don't. I'm trying to find one with the right words. I just I can't find one that really describes how I feel. Here, this one. This one. This is the one. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Um. Sugar is sweet and so is honey. I bought you this card because I had no money. <laughs> that is so you! No, it's not. Yes, it no, is! No, it's not! It's not me! What are you trying to say? I need a card that says, I don't deserve you. I never have, and I never will. From the moment that I first saw you, I knew that I wanted to be with you, to know you, to understand you. I am humbled that you chose me. I have married out of my league and there's not a day that goes by that I don't recognize that fact. And I've never, I've never taken our vows lightly. What do I say to the mother of my children, my best friend, my soulmate? I love you can just sound so cliche and trite, but it's the only words that I know. I love you. I mean, that would be a card, you know? That would be a card that I'd want to buy. <laughs> What's the matter? What happened? Don't look at me! Okay, okay. Well, what, look away! I, I, I have, well, what's the matter? It's like I'm a swimming pool, and your words are like cannonballs landing. Pull yourself together, man. Attention, everybody. We are in the presence of a true wordsmith. No, we're not. Allow his words to be the wings on which your cards fly. No. No. I want what he's having. Okay, we need to go. We need to go right now. I've got an idea. 
we'll get those cards that are blank on the inside and we'll write your words on them and then we'll give them to our ladies. But we have to write in calligraphy. I'm just going to take your card. Wait, wait, what was that part about the true uh, soulmates? I need a pen. I gotta write this down. That stuff is gold. That'll give me a whole Sunday of football. Just a little more help for the guys today. So uh, we had a great uh, start to our morning, and uh, it is going to be a great end to our morning. And uh, I know many of the women in our church absolutely love uh, June and her ministry that she's had here and at different conferences, and I know we're going to enjoy her this morning. Would you please welcome June Evans as she comes? Thank you, Thank you. Well, good morning. Now you're going to hear the girls' side of the story. On August the 22nd, 1959, I entered into what I perceive as my highest earthly calling. Uh, I married uh, Jean Evans. Now in 1959, the culture was different. Uh, the way we dated and did life was different. And I, I had had no counseling about this calling I was going to enter. Uh, no one really prepared me for being a wife. I read no books. Uh, Jean and I did no pastoral counseling. We met and married in six months. So, you know, in those days, pastoral counseling was not a big thing, and books on marriage were not a big thing. <clears throat> I suppose that I, as a 20-year-old, thought that love was going to take me the distance. I was in love, and Jean was in love with me. And I remember, you know, we were students our, our last year at the University of Alabama, and as this engaged girl, I would sit in my classrooms at the university campus, and I would practice writing Mrs. Jean E. Evans. Mrs. Jean E. Evans. And I would think, I am going to be the best wife this man could ever have found. I'm going to take care of him, nurture him. I will iron his shirt wash his underwear, straighten out his drawers, and keep his things neat. And you heard the story that lasted four days. <laughs> and on the fourth day, with his eggs over easy, I wanted to turn him back over to Mama. And we did settle the eggs over easy issue in two words, cracker barrel. When he wants eggs over easy, we go to Cracker Barrel. <laughs> because he's very particular about his eggs, and I can't do them to satisfy him. So Cracker Barrel is a good answer for some of these issues. Sometimes it's just a simple answer to a very complicated question. I, I suppose Gene and I had formed our opinions of marriage uh, from the culture and from the family units in which we had been raised. 
you know, we, as I said, there was no culture like this where we went and people were taught how to do marriage. And I had observed my own parents' marriage. Uh, I live very close to family members. And I understood at an early age the marriage relationship was this, this polar opposite, the agony and the ecstasy. Uh, that there was agony and there was some ecstasy. And that was the way I had observed life. Jean probably came from that same background. And in 1959, I had only met one woman who was divorced. Divorce was not common in 1959. Divorce wasn't really an issue with married couples. So there was this place where people just got married and sort of kept the fingers crossed that it was going to work out okay. And if it didn't, you still were going to be married the rest of your lives. And my mother and father, had they, they never got a divorce, but they never got along. My mother was fingernails on my father's blackboard, and my father was high-tempered, and, you know, I had just grown up in that kind of family. And, and when I, I married Jean, I just trusted that love was going to take us the distance. So we were married in the East Gadsden, Alabama Methodist Church on August the 22nd at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And Jean was soon to be 23 years old. I was 20 years old. And we stood before two pastors. One of them was a relative and the other was the pastor of the Methodist Church. And he asked us questions. And with stars in our eyes and wedding bells in our ears, we looked at each other and said, I do. I do. I do. I do. And then he declared that we were one flesh, husband and wife, and we would be that until death do us part. And our marriage began that way. Very romantic very, uh, you know, sort of uh, violin music in the background, you understand? Romance. And, you know, I compare those I do's that we say at marriage to that contract that you sign when you update your iPhones on the settings. <laughs> that contract is written in letters that are about a quarter of an inch high. And none of us know what that contract says. We just punch, I agree. And we don't know what we've agreed to do. We haven't got the foggiest idea what's written there. We just punch the button and agree to do it. And this is the way the I do was at the altar. I didn't have the foggiest idea what I was agreeing to do. He didn't have the foggiest idea what he was agreeing to do. And it wasn't long till the wedding bells became alarm <laughs> sirens. And uh, it was no longer I do, it is I don't do eggs over easy. <laughs> Four days I meant I don't do. And so, you know, we, we had to uh, work this thing out. Now when we come and talk about marriage, husband, wife, 
one flesh till death do us part. It, it just sounds really, really good. But the problem is it has to be lived. It has to be lived. This isn't a Hollywood script. The ending is not sure uh, because every one of us in the room have to work it out. And when Jeannie and I do marriage seminars, we don't come with a lot of one, two, threes because every relationship is different. What works for you may not work for us. What, what works for one over here may not work at all here. We all come into this room with different issues, different relationships, different personalities, different dysfunctions, different uh, ideas. And we put all of that into this relationship that some pastor has declared will last until death do us part. And I think statistics today tell us a lot of people aren't able to work it out. A lot of people uh, give up rather than doing, as Gene said, pressing through the conflict to come to the place where it can be performed. Now, Gene established this morning that the only place in the Bible that ever says heaven upon the earth was within the context of the family. It was spoken in Deuteronomy 11 uh, about the Israelites, that the mother, the father, and the children, their days would be multiplied, and they would live as heaven upon the earth. So when we read this, we must understand there has to be something supernatural about the marriage. We have to begin to think of marriage differently then this is just a relationship of love. Two people met, fell in love, and they're going to do life together. Rather, we have to go back to the origins of marriage and remember God is the one who initiated marriage. And when God says, your days are going to be like heaven upon the earth, there is this supernatural thumbprint of God upon marriage. And God who is invisible, God who is spirit, none of us uh, physically have contacted God, none of us have seen his face, but God has told us in the scriptures, I'm going to put a picture of heaven in the earth. And the way this man loves his wife is going to be a picture of the way Christ loves the church. The way this woman submits to that man's love is going to be a picture of the way God's people submit to the love of God. And the way the children obey the parents is going to be a picture of obedience. So God has put his thumbprint upon marriage, and we, we sometimes forget that we're called to do this. That there's something higher upon marriage than just this relationship. Uh, as Jean told us, this relationship so that we don't fight, we love each other, we work it out, and that's all well and good. But then we have to shift the gears 
And we have to move over here because this is a calling of God so that people who don't know God should be able to look at Jean and me as we relate together, husband to wife, wife to husband, as our children are, are brought into that relationship and say so there, there's something really supernatural about this. There, there is something uh, uh, that is being shown here. And, and I, I believe that marriage is one great calling, that just, just as, as a man or a woman may step into a ministry and be called pastor, evangelist, apostle, teacher, so it's a calling to be a husband. It's a calling to be a wife. And God wants us to understand that the great calling, as Jean said, can become a great conflict. Because the reason we do seminars like this is we struggle with it. Uh, you know, Jean is absolutely right. Uh, I, I loved him dearly, but I did spend my first year crying. I don't know what there is about him that made me cry that first year, but I cried. If he looked cross-eyed at me, I cried. If we got in the automobile, I cried. It was just very traumatic to go to school and be married to him. I, I wonder I even survived that first year. And Jean said to me one time, uh, I'll, I'll never uh, divorce you and remarry because I couldn't go through a first year with another woman. <laughs> it was that bad, wasn't it? <laughs> he said, I couldn't endure that again. I've gotten through that first year and I'm just going to stay with you. I said, well, thanks. I appreciate that. I looked some things up on the internet. I just wanted to see what different people said about marriage. There is a woman comedian, her name is Rita Rudner. This is what Rita has to say about it. Men who have pierced ears and wear earrings are well prepared for marriage, for they have experienced pain and bought jewelry. So she believes that's what, you know, prepared a man for marriage. Rodney Dangerfield said this, my wife and I were happy for 20 years and then we met each other. This is my favorite. By all means marry. If you get a good wife, you'll be happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. Socrates said this. So I guess Socrates was a philosopher because he got uh, the wrong kind of, of wife. Now, when, when God says this couple is going to be one flesh, I, I want us to center in a minute on the supernatural quality of marriage. Because there, there's really uh, not many, many times that the Bible will take this, this word one and apply it to situations. It's spoken of first with God. There's one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, we encounter this again in the New Testament when we are told 
there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, and we, the church, are one body. And we are one with Christ. Speaking about a relationship that, it, that is very spiritual. And then God takes this word one and he applies it to the marriage relationship. And he says these two are going to be one flesh. Uh, this, this man and this woman who are totally diverse, a woman will never be a man, a man will never be a woman, male and female, they're going to come together and be one flesh. And let us be very sure that what is going on in our culture at this moment is a spiritual warfare about the issue of male and female. Satan has gone right to the very foundation of all relationships and is confusing our young people about sexuality and gender. And God says, I'm going to take a, a man who will forever be a man and a woman who will forever be a woman, not two men, not two women, and I'm going to put them together and they'll be one flesh. Now, a woman will even carry her children within her womb, and she's never one with those children. Those children will be born, uh, and she's not one with the child. This is why a girl can abort a baby without killing herself, because she's not one with the baby. She is just the a womb whereby God creates life. But yet with my husband, God has said to me, I'm going to take the two of you and I'm going to make you one flesh. Very high calling. And there's something very supernatural about that. Because as Jean said, men and women are totally different uh, to, to live together and to become one really is a full-time job. Jean and I have worked very diligent to come to the latter years of our life and to have the relationship we have and, and to uh, enjoy each other. It really has been a full-time job, and it's taken a lot of the supernatural uh, power of God. So that it said in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Solomon wrote, it's, it's, it's really better to have two instead of one. And Solomon is going to give us the value of relationship. He said if one falls, he has nobody to pick him up except there's a second person there. He said one person cannot have heat alone on a very cold night. Uh, but two people can produce heat for each other. And then Solomon says this, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, I do not know this for a fact, but I was told this by someone who actually had knowledge about ropes and cords. And he told me that there's nothing stronger than a threefold cord that you can't keep adding cords and make a stronger rope. 
that the threefold cord is the strongest cord you can twine together. And God tells us that this threefold cord is not easily broken. And in the marriage, that third presence in the marriage is God himself, husband, wife, and then God is that third cord. And when God is in the, the marriage, then that threefold cord is not easily broken. As Jean said, there may be some conflict, and certainly, you know, we can have conflict even after 58 years of marriage. Uh, there certainly can be disagreements, but there's something here that in the midst of the conflict and in the, the midst of the disagreements that is not easily broken, and it's because God has been dropped into it. So our purpose in teaching you is not necessarily to give you five points and you go home and, you know, it'll work out for you, because you're not us. What worked for us may not work for you. Uh, maybe some of you women are married to chit-chatters. But when Jean and I married, it just, this was one reason I cried. I would say things to him. And Gene could talk without moving his lips. And I would say, what kind of day did you have? Fine. Talk to anybody? No. Anything go on? Uh-uh. I said, Gene, we're going to be married. You're going to have to say words that move your lips. I want to see your lips move. I want your lips to poke out, move up and down. Not, uh-uh, no, yes, no. Just drove me up a wall. Well, that was my conflict. Just drove me up a wall. I'm just a talker. My father was a talker. We were just those kinds of people. And, and so, you know, there, there aren't, what I'm trying to tell you is, there's no real one book you're going to read that's going to solve your problems. There's no one, two, three, four, five that somebody's going to come from Georgia and you're going to go home and everything's going to be rosy. The best way to have a marriage is to fall to your knees and put God in the middle of it and then let God help you work, work it out. Go through to the end. Because it's not just having a good marriage. There are a lot of people who don't even know God that have good marriages. But we want godly marriages. Marriages that really do show forth heaven upon the earth. And this one flesh is very supernatural. This is something that, that God has to uh, do. I, I don't really have a scripture to back this up. But I do believe that when the Bible says we're married and we become one flesh, there is this supernatural thing that God begins to work in a marriage relationship. I do not believe that is at work when a man and a woman just cohabit together without marriage. I do not believe that is found in many sexual partners. 
I believe it is a supernatural thing that God does in a relationship between a man and his wife. So this marriage relationship, I want you to understand, is very supernatural. And Gene and I want to release the Holy Spirit into your marriages so that the Holy Spirit, who has been sent to help you, can walk you through those arenas of conflict, unforgiveness, bitterness, all of the things that can happen when we live 24-7 with our mate. Now, I, I want to bring this within the context of the wife, but in doing this, I'm also going to talk further to the husbands. But there are certain things in the Bible that God has said uh, about the woman. Uh, Just sort of unique things. Because um, having, you know, a woman was a God idea. Uh, You know, I read the story of Adam's creation. Adam was created first. And we're going to read a scripture in a moment that tells us that there was a season when Adam lived alone, and then God decided, you know, that he would bring the woman into the story. And, uh, you know, I I teach this, and I, I say, you know, the Bible says God would come down in the evening, and he would talk with Adam, and then he would come down in the evening, and I guess he and Adam would fellowship. But when Eve came, all of that changed. And you know what Eve brought to the story? Drama. Because women do bring drama to the story, you know. There's a lot of drama in Gene's life. that would never have been drama if he hadn't had the privilege of being married to me, Pastor Darrell. He just had a lot of drama. I mean, just, you know, things that just kind of wake him up, just drama. And, you know, here's this woman talking to the snake and just drama, you know, that emotional drama that that only a woman can bring. But let's don't put her down. It was a God idea. It was a God idea. Now, God says in Genesis 2, 18, first statement that ever points toward a woman. And God looked at this man, Adam, And he said, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, this was not a statement made by Adam. Because Adam had never had a woman. Adam had never had a wife. Uh, Adam really was not alone. Because God himself was present. Adam had God. And God is teaching us something here that God is going to move us as human beings beyond just the sort of cloistered one-on-one relationships into a wider circle of relationship. Adam and God were good. That was powerful. But God looked at Adam and said he's alone. It is not good for man to be alone. Now, men, that is a statement from God to you. Because as Gene said, 
a lot of times men get married and they continue to live alone. Uh, Gene uh, was not the chit-chatter. He just would have gone for hours in silence because that's the way you live alone. You don't move your lips when you're alone. And, and God, you know, was taking Adam into this relationship that God himself said was essential. And it is not good for man to be alone. Now, I had the privilege of being the only female in our home. I had the husband and I'm the mother of two sons. And I left them alone one weekend. And when I came home, I had a revelation. It's not good to leave three men alone <laughs> for a weekend. It was pretty bad, men. I hate to say it, it was just bad. I walked in the door and Jean greeted me and said, oh, we cleaned up. And I looked around, I thought, thank God, because it looks bad, it looks bad. There were towels on the kitchen counters. There were shirts around the uh, breakfast room chairs. Underwear was in the coffee table. Uh, there were pants over the sofa in the den, shoes by the door. And I said to Jean, well, if you cleaned up, why didn't you put everything up? Because he told me he had washed clothes. All of that was clean. He said, look, June, this is a much better system than you have. We just run in here, and here's a towel. We just dry off. We just go over here and put our underwear on, and we eat our, without our shirts, and it doesn't dribble down our shirt, and then we just put our shirts on, and then we can put our shoes on, and out the door. Well, it's not good, man, for you to be alone. <laughs> Don't get mad at me. God said that. You can't get mad at me. I think that's why God left Adam naked till he made Eve to pick up his clothes. You know, he said, I'm not putting any clothes on it until Eve's there to kind of straighten up behind it. Just not good for, for men to be alone. Now, this word alone is very unique, very powerful word with five little letters. And, and there's something in Adam that is alone. And even God himself had not answered that. Although God is all-sufficient, God is all-powerful, God is uh, all-meaningful, but God looked at him and said, he's alone, and, and this is not good. The literal Hebrew word is solitary. And God was going to answer that aloneness with his wife, Eve. She was going to be the answer to that. So when a couple come before God and enter into this calling of husband and wife, God intends that it answer this basic need in a man which, which God identifies as alone. And as a woman, there's, there's not a lot that I can say to you men about that because as a woman, I myself have never experienced whatever God must have meant in that. 
But yet, th this is what God says. And I, I think in answering that, uh, there, there is, there, it goes into this depth of relationship that will not be had with any other human being. And it goes right down to the depth of the sexual relationship, which is the way that God ordained that, that future generations would be born. The sexual union of a man and a woman. He cannot give life by himself, and she cannot give life by herself. In order for life to come, God, God created this very intimate sexual relationship. Our problem today is the enemy of God, the, the, uh, the devil himself, has gone right down here to the basic elements of God's creation, and the sexual relationship has been made something very profane. It is no longer sacred and holy. And sex just becomes something that men and women decide they will or they won't do. Many sexual partners, uh, men with men, women with women, and they just say, well, it's about sex. We had sex. And when there's no marriage, I think that's true. There's something very profane about it. There's something very wrong. And there's something that doesn't answer the need in a man. Because uh, this alone is going to be met by a wife. And a man can't find it with many women. He finds it with a wife. And a wife has to cooperate with that. And so God, God created this couple. They were to be uh, totally naked. There was to be an intimacy. There was to be a knowledge so that in this couple relationship, nobody knows him, my husband, like I know him. Nobody knows me like he knows me. There is a, if I can use the word, a, a nakedness that, that is here with the two of us. I know him like you will never know him. And he knows me the way that you will never know me. And that's an intimacy. And in that marriage relationship, this alone has been answered. It's, as Gene said in his first session, every husband wants to be met at the door by a woman that thinks he's the greatest thing in shoe leather. And he knows it's not true. The wife knows it's not true. But, but there is this, this thing, this, this need that, that the wife meets in the husband. And this relationship is going to go just beyond sexual union. And it's going to go to a depth. And the word that the Bible uses is to know to know. And when the Bible talks about a husband and wife having sexual union, the Bible never says 
uh, Adam and Eve had sex together, and they birthed Cain. But rather, Genesis 4 says Adam knew Eve, and she gave birth to Cain. And the Bible uses that verb to know in the sexual union. Because God never intended that many, many partners would enter into that kind of relationship. That this was never the intent of God. Sex was supposed to be sacred and holy. It, it was something God ordained, and the enemy has just taken it and has robbed our young people of the meaning of it, of the, the depth of it. The pornographers have just taken it and have made something ugly and perverted out of it because it is a very powerful thing which God has done. And in that marriage relationship, God said Adam knew Eve. And, and it was not just talking about the sexual union, it was talking about this relationship that no other person would have with, with me, with Adam, with Eve, with Jean. No, nobody else will have this relationship. He and I will draw a circle around it. And we'll close our doors, and you won't know what that's like because it's private to us, sacred to us, and, and it's what God has ordained. So that I really do know him. After 58 years, I know him. And God took this word. When God speaks of adultery in the Bible, the Bible never uses the word no. It says of David's adultery with the woman Bathsheba, it said David laid with Bathsheba. He did not know Bathsheba. He laid with her. Because God was not going to take that word to know and put over here with an adulterous relationship. So this sexual union was to answer this alone in Adam. That this alone, and it really does, women, answer something in a man. It's like Jean said, if he can't pay his bills, have some initiative, he won't care whether he pays his bills, because that's how deep it goes with a man. And, and in this relationship, 58 years of marriage, Jean and I have come to a place where there really is a spiritual a union here that transcends words. It, it transcends feelings. Now, Jean was born on a farm in the, the country in, in Alabama. And when I met him at the University of Alabama, he needed a lot of polishing. Uh, he needed some training. You understand that, you know. He, he's not the man you see today. And one of Gene's bad, bad, bad habits, because in the South we drink iced tea, and our iced tea is a big glass filled with, back in these days, it was ice cubes. We did not have crushed ice then. It was big cubes of ice. And Jean would drink all of the iced tea. 
And then he would eat every ice cube in the glass. And what he would do is turn the glass up and hit the bottom of it to loosen the ice cubes, or he would beat the ice against the glass to loosen the cubes, and then he would put a big ice cube in his mouth and talk with the ice cube in his mouth. Cheek stuck out, just talking away, and the water would run out of his mouth, and he would, you know, suck the water back in, crunch, 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 just talking away, and he'd do it in public, he'd do it in restaurants, and I would say to him, don't do that, it looks horrible. Do not turn your glass upside down and eat ice cubes. And to a measure, he was somewhat obedient when I would tell him that. So as we moved along, Gene became a director uh, in this Christian businessmen's organization back in the 70s. And being a director, it meant that in our conventions, he would sit on the platform with other directors. And this particular night, we probably had two, 3,000 people out here at a banquet. I'm not on the platform with him because I'm down here at a table where the wives sat. And Oral Roberts was the speaker that night. So I'm sitting here on the floor. Gene's directly behind me up on a platform. And I'm looking over my shoulder like this at Brother Roberts when I hear rattle, 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 rattle. Now, I didn't need an angel to appear and tell me what that strange noise was. I knew what that was. I thought, the man is eating ice cubes. And so I turn around, turn my chair around, Here's Gene sitting sideways looking at Brother Roberts beating on the bottom of that glass. That big old ice cube stuck out. He's going, you know, rattle, 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 crunch, crunch, crunch. And I did what any good wife will do. I fixed him with the evil eye. Now, man, the evil eye has power. You can feel it miles away, you know. Your hair can stand up. You think something's going on. There's an evil eye that is on me. And sure enough, after a minute or two, Jean looked down at where I was. I did not wave my glass. I did not point to my mouth. I did this. and he spit out the ice. <laughs> now, if I walked up to one of you men here and did that, you'd think, what does she want me to do? But if your wife does that, you know exactly what she's saying to you. Communication, no words, no words. We can drive for three hours and say nothing sometimes. And when we get there, we'll say, wasn't that good? We just enjoyed it. Just words. Gene, Gene, Gene can come in and say, what's wrong? You know how women are. Nothing. Nothing. I know something's wrong. I'm, I can tell. And he can. No words. Now, it wasn't long ago. It, it was a cold night. 
in Georgia, and we had the fire going. We're drinking hot chocolate. He's working crossword puzzles. I'm reading a book. We haven't spoken a word in over an hour. We're just in, in our home with the fire, the hot chocolate, the crosswords, the book. And Gene all of a sudden interrupted the silence, and he looked over at me and he said, you know, it just doesn't get any better than this. And that's absolutely right. Because there's something going on that, that is very deep to know. And it is that sexual relationship that initiates that. The very nakedness of that relationship is sacred between you and, and the mate. And, and yet that takes us to depth in the marriage to where it's really not about sexual relationship at all. It's about this alone, that this, this relationship that has been built that goes beyond words. Uh, Jean and I were doing a, a meeting. We had been invited to this small town, and uh, it had one hotel, little motel, real run-down little place. It was the only place they could put us because it was the only motel in town, but it was bad. It was just bad. It had a window air conditioner that didn't work well. and So we had done the meeting, and it was about 10 o'clock at night. The air conditioner over here wasn't working well, so we're in a state of undress, sitting on this little old sofa in this little kind of crummy motel room, drinking Diet Cokes and eating some cookies and popcorn. And I look up, and there's a big hole in the wall up toward the ceiling. And I said to Jean, there's a hole in the wall. And we're looking at it, and I said, I wonder if there's a camera up there taking pictures of us. You know how you read about these hidden cameras? And Gene looked up there, and he said, well, if there is, they'll plug up the hole because there's not much going on in here. <laughs> and how many know in that marriage relationship, you don't have to have a lot going on when you've established to know, when you've gone to that depth of relationship. So it is not good that man should be alone. That is the first thing God ever said about the woman. And then God gave the reason for creating the woman. He, he said uh, in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, I'm going to make him a helper fit for him. And that word fit is very personal. It means that every wife has got to fit herself into his life. Very difficult sometimes for us women to do that because we, we sort of live in this culture where womanhood is not being defined by the Word of God today, but by many uh, angry voices uh, from women who are trying to tell us what it means to be women. But here's this picture of a help fit for him. Very personal. Again, we can't give you five points that'll go home and 
you put the five points together. As Jean said, it's a job. You have to work it out yourselves. But every wife fits herself into the life uh, of the husband. And uh, this, this husband-wife relationship uh, is going to be where she is there to help him be the man God has called him to be. Abraham could not have been Abraham without Sarah. What God wanted out of Abraham, the first covenant man, required a, a wife. And my calling as a wife to Gene is to enable him to fit my life into his and enable him to be the man that God has called him to be. And my purpose as his wife is to help him. Now the problem with this is Adam did not ask God for help. Uh, God's the one that said he needed help. Now I'm not going to talk about every man in the room because I don't know you. But this man right here doesn't think he needs a lot of help. You know, he just doesn't think that. When I try to help him sometimes, we end up in envy and in strife and confusion, you know, over here, but we just won't talk about that on Saturday morning, okay? You kind of get the picture, right? And sometimes he just rebukes me when I'm trying to help him. You know, he, he's colorblind. And I'll say to him, you just look awful. Your pants are one color, your shoes are another color, your shirt doesn't match. There's nothing wrong with this. Just leave me alone. I say, you look horrible. You just look horrible. He just doesn't want my help, you know. And I've had to uh, just rebuke him kindly. You need help. God said you need help. <laughs> God said you need help. And he's, I still have to sometimes beat it into him. You need help. You need help. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't say that in his message, did he? That he needed help from me. Because, you know, men just kind of back away from this. But this is a beautiful calling of God upon a wife. To me, it mimics the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been called alongside us to help us. And God says to the wife, uh, she's going to be a help and she's going to fit her life into his. And I really have endeavored to live by this, and I know this to be true in my own life, that I have always gone where God wanted to take Gene. And I've always said to Gene, you hear from God, and I'll go with you. Because a lot of times men don't take time to hear from God. And I say, you tell me what God wants out of you, and I'll go with you, and help you get there, because that's my calling. And in that, God has made me a, a better woman. Now, Proverbs says this uh, about a good wife. Proverbs 31 talks about this excellent wife, this outstanding woman. And it says in Proverbs 31, verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her because she will do him good 
and not evil all the days of her life. Now, women, this is where we have to work to ensure that our husbands trust us. See, Jean has got to trust me. And the underlying uh, foundation of that trust is that my heart is to do him good. That has to be in the, wife, the heart of a wife. My heart is to do him good. And even when I have to be a little bit negative, it's not the negativity of the bad, it is the, the prodding toward the good. And women, that's just something we have to work at. Men, men need to trust us. I think in the male psyche, without the hand of God, that men sometimes have this, this sort of bipolar thing with women. They're attracted to women because of the sexual drive, but on the other hand, because of what Eve did with Adam, Adam trusted her, and she gave him a bad fruit to eat, and he lost his place with God. I think men can be a little skittish uh, of women. I found this being a woman preacher, that there are a lot of men that just don't like women preachers. They're a little bit this way. And I, I can understand that. I, I, I know where that, that comes from. So there has to be this heart of a woman to do the husband good. Now, women, the Bible says we are called to help our husbands. It does not say we are called to change our husbands. Only God can change a person. And we cannot be women that are trying to change a man. Our calling is to help. And God will do changing. And we back away from trying to change, and we understand the anointing is, is there to help. Because what happens with women, and Proverbs says this, is we become contentious, nagging, complaining wives. And Proverbs says this about that, a wife's nagging is a continual dripping of water. Have you ever heard water drip? It gets on your nerves. And a woman can get on a man's nerves because she nags. And that, that I think, is the negative of the motivation to help. She wants to help, and when he does not immediately obey, she wants it changed, and she becomes a nagging wife. Proverbs went on to say, it is better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a wide house with a nagging, contentious wife. And, and that is true. So the wife meets this issue of aloneness, and the wife helps the man. Now we, we go to the New Testament, and, and Jean uh, spoke about this, this this morning, so I, I don't want to belabor the fact, 
But the New Testament tells us that this relationship, husband and wife, does have a calling upon it. That it is going to mirror the spiritual relationship between Christ and his church. Now you've got to grab the, the depth of this. There is a calling to show to the world the relationship Jesus Christ has with the church, heaven upon the earth, that, that God wants this calling there. And God gives us the requirements. The husband is to love with the agape love of Jesus Christ. And Jean dealt with that. It's a love that gives. It's a love that is not selfish. It, it is the love of God. And when the love of God is at the head of the house, when the love of God is in the man, something is answered in that household that the wife cannot give to the household. And it is a security. It is a, a love that never fails. And we won't take the time, but just read 1 Corinthians 13. Takes no issue with, with suffered wrongs, always believes the best, kind, patient, long-suffering, tender-hearted. And when a man brings that into the family, he answers a real deep need in a wife, which is acceptance, security. Because I think there's something in women that was lost in Eve. Because when, uh, you know, Adam and Eve messed it up, the man turned and Adam blamed Eve. When God said to Adam, why have you done this? He said, the woman you gave me made me do this. And in the unregenerate man is this wife-blaming spirit that can come. And, and when the love of God is, is in the man, and as Jean said, you're willing to work out conflict, it brings security there. That I know uh, he, he loves me. And I know that he's, he's in this for life. He's made a commitment to me till death do us part. And we're going to be in this for life. So that, that the love of Christ in the man has to be there. And before I, I talk about the submission of the wife, I want to be sure you, you men understand this. Because women today because of, uh, you know, the feminist movement. Uh, goodness, I could talk for hours about what I see going on in women in our country today. And it really disturbs me. Because I, I think, uh, you know, we, we're raising a generation that don't even understand what it means to be male and female. Uh, what it means to be a woman. And there are a lot of angry women out there. There are a lot of women who've been abused and hurt and because relationships are so ungodly and profane. Uh, we must understand uh, there is something in women that reacts when you say, wives, you, you submit 
to your husband. And in the carnal woman, there's something in her that will react to that. Because in our carnal thinking, submission is really a bad word. You, you just go out on the streets and tell a woman to submit to a man, and they'll tell you how quick they don't like that. How quick that submission is a bad, bad word. But submission is a God word. And submission does not mean a man can demand it. Because a man, if he's bigger than a woman, stronger than a woman, a man has the ability to dominate his wife. A man can abuse his wife. And a man can cause that woman through fear and domination and coercion, through verbal abuse, to come into this relationship where she does everything he says. But that is not submission. That is domination. And anyone can abuse and dominate another person. Submission is a thing that is freely given. And the Bible teaches us it is the the spirit of the woman. It is not necessarily her, her actions. It is her spirit. And when the Bible says that the wife is to submit, we cannot remove that from the love of God in the husband. Because the Bible never tells a woman to just submit to anything that a man says. It says, husbands, Love your wives. Wives, submit to these husbands who love you with the love of God. And Gene is right. He has done that. What he preached to you, he has done. Uh, I, I will put a yes and amen upon every word he spoke to you today. He really did step back from self-pleasing. He really is a giver. He really does bless me with his words. And in that, I have no trouble submitting to Gene. I just don't have a, a least bit of trouble submitting. But I had a friend whose husband was sort of a quasi-Christian. He was into pornography. And she came to me. She was in a Bible study I was teaching. And she said, he wants me to watch porn with him and then do what we watch. And I said, well, no, you don't do that. And she just argued with me. She had to do it to submit. And I took her to the scripture in 1 Peter 3 that says, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. And I, I read that, and it's like who? Likewise, you be in subjection, and you just back up into Peter, and you find that he's talking about the way Christ submitted to sinners. And when you read how, how Christ submitted to the sinners, it says in 1 Peter 2, he did not commit sin, neither was the seat found in his mouth. He didn't use his mouth to say ugly things. When he was reviled, he did not re revile in return. He did not threaten, but he trusted himself to God. So I read that to her, and I said, it says right here, uh, you can't commit to sin. And she said, no, I'm, I'm going to do this. 
So she, she left. I didn't see her for two years. And she finally stumbled back into my Bible study one day. I didn't even recognize her. I didn't even recognize her. Sin had taken her so far. She had been involved in things that were degrading and abusive to her life. And her husband was no nearer to God than he'd been in the beginning. And I, I said to her, that, that is not the power uh, of submission. Uh, Peter talked about it, and he said this about the woman. He says, you can be in subjection to your own husband that if any of them do not obey the word, they may be won without your words by the power that is working in you. And there, there is this power in a woman when she establishes this attitude toward her husband. It's a, it's a right attitude. It's not that she does everything he tells her to do. Uh, Peter described it as a meek, quiet spirit. Meek means power. Is un she's under the control of the Holy Spirit. And quiet means she's not trying to disturb his life. And there's something there that the Bible says is attractive to a man. And we certainly can't work out all the details of that, but this is what Jean talked to you this morning. It's a job. And just like you'll leave this building and you'll all go work on your job, and we can't give you 10 points that'll help you be successful on your job. You have to go out there and work it out yourself. But these are things you work out. Likewise, wives be in subjection to your own husbands, and they will be one without a word. Because the women have been given the power to guide the home. This is said in Titus, so that when you come into my home, it tells you very little about Gene. It may tell you, you know, he had enough money to buy a king-size bed. You know, it'll tell you that about him. But the pictures, the doodads, the comforters, the flowers, the dishes, tell you about me. And when you come in, you form an opinion of me. You know, uh, you don't look around and say to Jean, wow, you've just got the most beautiful china I have ever laid my eyes on. You'll say that to me, because you know I'm the one that went out and brought that china. Jean would eat off paper plates. I tell him, we love China. We go and buy a lot of plates because we love China. Do you love China? Yes. Nod your head. <laughs> he says, I have too many dishes, and I do. But you, you follow my point. It's the woman that, that is in that house. And the Bible says that, that wives, you're to submit. Now, submit doesn't mean we do everything a man tells us to do. We have no will of our own. Submission means I'm joining my life to his, and, and I'm going to answer this thing that's alone in him, and I'm going to help him be the man God has called him to be. And when I submit to do that, then I am raised up by the love of God in him so that we stand before you today equal.
Do you follow that? I'm not under his thumb. He's not way up here and I'm down here. We, we have been uh, brought together. He loves me. I've submitted. And when you submit, Christ submitted to the will of God the Father and God raised him up and exalted him. And the love of God in the man raises the woman up to stand at his side as his equal. So that everybody knows Abraham couldn't have been Abraham without Sarah. And there should be the same uh, testimonies in our own marriage. Ephesians ends uh, in Ephesians chapter 5 by saying that the wife reverences her husband. Now literally, that word reverence doesn't mean worship, it means to esteem. Uh, There is something about the esteem of the wife. Uh, Men need to be met at the door, as I said earlier, by a woman that thinks he's the greatest thing in shoe leather. I know his weaknesses. I know his faults. I know them better than anybody else, but I esteem him. I I highly uh, esteem him. And I give him his place because I'm the only one in this family that can make him the head. Because no one is the head until there is submission. Jesus is the head of this church if the people who go to this church submit to his headship. And and this is the way it is in a marriage. I I make him the head. And I, I, through the years, I taught our children, uh, we esteem daddy. And I would never allow my children to do anything or to say anything to me personally about their father. I myself never have said anything to my boys about their father. And I showed my children by my actions, we respect this man. He is the head of this family. He is my husband. He is your father. And we reverence that. We esteem that. We give him that place. And my boys are both in their 50s today and have a wonderful uh, respect and honor and love for their father. And I, their mother, had a lot to do with that. Because I, their mother, had input into their lives in a much deeper measure many times than the father did. And even in my own personal relationships with other women, I do not go and sit around a lunch table and talk about Jean's faults and weaknesses. If I need to counsel, I'll do that, but I don't gossip about my husband. I treat him with respect, and most of the people who know us do so because they follow that that lead for me. That's what the Bible means when it says, by treating with respect. Now, I'll close with... Uh, this word to us girls. We girls have this issue going on many times that uh, I don't think men go to the depth of it that we do, and it's called hormones. And uh, I actually did a teaching on hormones and the Holy Ghost because I saw that women many times are ruled 
by hormonal, you know, episodes. And women can be very dramatic. And I myself had to, in this subjection, had to bring things in my flesh under the rulership of the Holy Spirit and die to things. Uh, I was brought up in a family. Uh, my father's side of the family were high-tempered people. Said exactly what they thought. Now, they didn't, you know, throw dishes and anything, but when they got mad, they told you what they thought. And they didn't care if it hurt. They said what they thought. And we had loud mouths. So I was raised by a father. He wasn't abusive, but he could just blow. And he would say exactly what he thought. And when he would blow, my mother would cry. My little sister would suck her thumb. My little brother would go put the baseball against the side of the house, throw it till Daddy calmed down. And I would fight with Daddy because I liked to fight. I mean, I was brought up in this family. I could talk as loud as he could. And Daddy and I would beat on the table and point our fingers. And we never held grudges. We just said what we thought. And then we'd go out and eat burgers together. And we'd leave Mama crying, Sister sucking the thumb. Dad and I just fine. We said what we thought. And we're going to get a hamburger. Everybody else laying on the floor. But we're going to get a hamburger. It's just the way I was. So I married Jean, who doesn't move his lips or communicate. I, I really do say to him, to this day, I say something, you say something, because he's just a non-communicator. And so we get married, and when he wouldn't do what I wanted him to, I'd just blow. And, you know, I mean, I'm talking about, I'm born again. I'm talking about a 40-year-old woman in ministry, spirit-filled didn't blow in church because they wouldn't ask me to speak if I blew in church, but I'd blow with him at home behind closed doors. He had a name for me. My father was Sam, and when I'd blow, he'd say, oh, dear God, here comes Sammy June, and it'd make me madder, and I'd call him Miss Lois. That was his mother, and he's like his mother. So we'd Sammy June, Miss Lois, each other, and and, you know, he'd say to me, June, you really need to do something about that temper. You're a born-again, spirit-filled woman. I'd say, it's not a temper. It's personality. You're just not used to personality. <laughs> you know? And he'd say, well, I'd like a little less personality around the house. <laughs> and one day, you know, God put his finger on it. And God told me, I had to crucify Sammy June, that it was sin, and I had to get it out of my life, and it was hard. Crucifixion, slow, painful, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, I put Sammy June in the grave. I just got delivered over it, and I just became this nice, sweet woman that you know, pleasant to be with, didn't blow up with anybody, and it was about three, four, five years after that, Gene and I are speaking in Marquette, Michigan. And we are, are there, and after the service, we go to eat, and the pastor said to us, you must eat coconut cream pie. 
Uh, they have wonderful coconut cream pie here. He said the pieces are so big you can divide them. You both eat a, one piece. So they bring the pie out on a platter. I mean, it was this, the platter was this big. The pie rose up like this. Huge, huge piece of pie. They set it between Jean and me and give us a fork each. We're going to eat the pie together. The pastor across the table looked at me and said, how many children do you have? Because we didn't really know him. And I said, two. He said, sons or daughters? I said, sons. I said, how many children do you have? And he said, three. And I said, sons or daughters? And he told me. What is that, a minute, minute and a half? I turned back for bite number two of my coconut cream pie, and when I turned back, Gene's chin is table level, and he's shoveling in the last bite. Nod your head up and down, you were shoveling in the last bite. And when I saw that, I felt, resurrection power. It started in my leg. I know how Lazarus felt in the tomb. I felt it rising up. I thought the dirty dog ate my pie. I, I wanted to stab him with the fork. I was so mad. And you know, Gene looked up at me and fear was in his eyes. He knew he had stepped over the boundary. And I'm about to tell him what I think of him the marriage, you know, all those things I hadn't been saying anything about, but I've got them filed away back there in case I need them. Uh, and I realized this pastor's sitting across the table, and I'm about to kill him with the fork. And we spoke on love and forgiveness in the Sunday morning service. So I just <clears throat> kind of cleared my throat, <clears> swallowed a couple of times, put my fork down, and said in a very sweet voice, tell me more about your family. Now, Gene's testimony of this, is he's seen deaf ears open, blind eyes open. He has a gift of healing. He's seen lame people walk. But the greatest manifestation of the Holy Spirit he has ever seen is when Sammy June rose out of the grave and I put her back down again. So you're not going to get there without the Holy Spirit. There are just a lot of issues, a lot of Sammy Junes in the room, Miss Lois, a lot of non-communicators. We don't know what your issue is, but we know if you put God in the rope and you put the power of the Holy Spirit to the flesh, you're going to have a godly marriage. Praise the Lord.